Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of your right hand, of your mighty arm that is not too short to save. It was your outstretched arm in the Exodus that is referred to again and again. In the record of your intervention on behalf of your people, where you led your chosen Lord out of slavery and bondage into freedom and set them apart, Lord, to be a nation of your design, to show forth the praises of your glory to their neighbors, to preserve the seed of the Messiah. We read in the Psalms that the heavens are indeed the works of your fingertips, and that by your intervention, Lord Jesus, in this created realm, we see the handiwork of our God when we look at a night sky filled with stars that sing your praise. Father, we read further in Scripture and we see that it is your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, your arm that is not too short to save, that delivered to us as a baby, born of a virgin, our Savior and Messiah, Jesus Christ, who at the fullness of time intervened on behalf of your own. And so we see, Father, from before time began, that your plan has been unfolding in your heart and in our experience and in history, perfectly according to the counsel of your will. And we rejoice as your predestined ones this morning, whose eyes have now been opened. Lord, you've touched us. The scales have been removed. And we can now see, Father, for those that are regenerate in this meeting, even this morning, how your right hand has reached into our lives and saved us, brought us from the pit of miry clay and set our feet on our rock, Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in you. Rejoice, Lord, that we are evidence of Psalm 118's truth. Now this morning as we open your scriptures, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to understand the riches therein contained, Lord, at new and greater depths, that we might be better equipped to glorify, worship, and praise you. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. This morning's text is Psalm 44. Psalm 44, turn there with me if you would. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand while you're turning there. Let me give you just a title and an explanation. Today's message is entitled Skeletal Structure, the skeletal structure of Psalm 44. We take that analogy of a body, the anatomy of a person, and we think about our skeleton and what purpose our bones serve. It really is to support and hold together our frame. And so I've chosen to take Psalm 44 in two parts, and this morning we're going to consider its structural foundation, its framework, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll consider more the heart of the psalm, the way I see it anyway, an analogy to separate two themes. And this morning we'll focus mainly on the theme of what frames this message. It's some, perhaps some surprising truths that we see between uh, these 26 verses and how they might apply to our lives. So with your Bible open to Psalm 44, stand with me if you would, and let's read these 26 verses together. The title of this morning's psalm is To the Choir Master, a Maskil of the Sons of Korah. And we read in the first verse, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. 
but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Verse 18, our heart has not turned back, nor our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, verse 23. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction our, and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The skeletal structure of Psalm 44. It is often the case in the remote corners of Scripture such as this. This is one of those psalms that if we were not moving expositionally through the psalms, covering them once a month, it may not be your favorite passage or the one that would be the first to consider as a theme for preaching, especially after the 8th verse. The rest of the psalm, all the way up to about verse 26, verses 8 through 25, are foreboding and negative to some degree indeed, and in some ways dramatically so. So we have here in our text today one of those remote corners of Scripture that can often be blurred, blurred by our modern eyes. Our modern eyes, perhaps a better way to say it, are blurry and need to be rubbed by the Spirit's transcendent power to illuminate what is going on here. Prayer, meditation, and careful study in context of wider revelation is the normative means to open our understanding to the otherwise obscure. And Psalm 44 is one of the examples of where this is necessary. If we do not look at the psalm in the context of the greater revelation of Scripture, and most specifically, <clears throat> we'll refer to Romans 8, 31-38 later in this message, that really holds a key to unlock our understanding of these enigmatic phrases. If we do not do that, we may find that we read Psalm 44 and it's left shrouded in a kind of caustic tenor. 
or a self-incriminating candor. That is, when we read these negative confessions, as it first appears to us, we wonder, does the psalmist actually betray his own lack of faith? Or is this a way that we ought to bring our cause before the Lord in prayer? It seems that there is a great deal of questioning going on here. How do we explain this tone and this attitude in these verses? But I think you will find, and I hope to deliver after some diligent digging, that there in this psalm is revealed priceless and timeless treasures, priceless and timeless truth for tortured souls in every age, and especially those souls who have tied themselves with the bonds of covenant, and better said, God has bound to Himself with the, with the ties and the chains of covenant that cannot be broken, though at times they feel stressed. The historical context and authorship of this psalm may remain somewhat a mystery and somewhat ambiguous. We're not sure in the life course of Israel's history who might have been the author or exactly what situation is being referred to here, and perhaps that uh, might remain a mystery, and perhaps it might not even be relevant because in light of further New Covenant revelation, it seems quite clear that there is a prophetic context that is striking to these words. Ambrose, the great church father and mentor of Augustine, he wrote of this psalm and he insightfully noted that the psalms that precede it contain among them prophetic allusions and sometimes just explicit pictures and prophecy of Christ's passion, Jesus' resurrection, the ascension, and many messianic truths. So it seems only natural and fitting then when we consider this that there might be a psalm like Psalm 44 that seems to anticipate the call of the church. That is Psalm 44, writing of a time in the future where those who are in Christ are called to suffer under persecution and embrace, as we see in the testimony of the Gospels and on through church history, embrace all witnessing opportunities, even to the point of martyrdom. This message this morning will therefore consider the framework of Psalm 44 in light of some of these contextual notes. That will be the main thrust today, and I hope a second message we can consider the martyr's estate, what we can learn about martyrdom and the call to be the, old, the witness that would pay the high cost of his own death if it were called of him as necessary. We'll hopefully consider that more specifically next week. But this morning, let's consider the structure and the context both immediately and in the broader context of, of Scripture, what we can learn from Psalm 44. To help us do that, let me give you a heading Heading is just points of reference for Psalm 44. I'll give you three of them this morning. Three points of reference to understand this psalm in context. Number one, covenantal element. We cannot understand Psalm 44 without understanding the elements of covenant, the basic means of relationship that God has instituted between Himself and His people. The covenantal element will contain implications, and specifically in covenant will find that the, especially in the beginning, verses 1 through 8, the implications of providential history, how they weigh heavy in our understanding of Psalm 44. That will be the brunt of my message this morning, but we'll briefly touch on two other points as well. Secondly, element, the element of surprise. 
we'll consider in the context that there are some surprising things within the text, and we'll consider this, um, what is more significant or what should be the judge of the other composition versus the ear. And this is an analogy of a piece of music and the person taking that piece of music in. And we can ask ourselves, uh, is there a problem with our own deafness or is there a problem with the way that the music is written? And when we come to Scripture, we must always begin with the presupposition that if it appears strange, contradictory, elusive to us in any way, that it is indeed a problem with our hearing, not a problem with the composition. But we'll study that a little more specifically as it even relates to the author and perhaps some of his own candid disillusionment in light of New Covenant further revelation. And then finally this morning, we'll close with an application, a kind of first-person application. What are we to do in light of what Psalm 44 reveals? Next week, next week I hope to give you a third-person application a prayer that we can pray or ways that we can intercede on behalf of the persecuted church that is under distress even in our day. But in this first-person application, we'll consider the relationship between reproach and blasphemy. When the church is reproached, is it also blaspheming Christ? So that's a brief overview this morning. First of all, let's consider under point number one, covenantal element, the implications of providential history. Let's consider a little more closely, verses 1 through 8. Let me read them again. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Verse 4, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. <clears throat> Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. The introductory words and thoughts of this psalm, especially these verses 1 through 8, contain a record of the providential history of the sovereign God, the creator of the universe, and the sustainer and redeemer of his people through the covenants that he has graciously cut with them, it contains a very useful and important introduction. And it would behoove us to take note that in the context and framework of Psalm 44, this much is at least implicitly clear. We are not equipped to deal with disillusioning adversity and darkness and trial that we might experience and the crushing weight of trial and circumstance unless our faith is firmly tied to the revelation and knowledge that God has perfectly, intrinsically, and sovereignly ordered the history of His people from the beginning to the point of our struggle. If the psalmist did not have the revelatory history 
of God's involvement with his forefathers, there is no way his faith would have stood the test of this affliction, this intense situation that he is dealing with right now. He opens declaring that God is powerful and he declares that he knows with certainty based on this testimony and revelation that God has intervened. God has not done so in a synergistic way, bringing what he has to offer alongside what people have to offer and thus between the sum of them just barely conquering the enemy. No, he recognizes that no tool in their hand and no fortuitous string of luck or what have you has anything to do with weighing the circumstances and the success in their favor, but instead it is only the Lord's hand that has driven out the nations. It is not by their sword, but it is only the arm of the Lord and His outstretched arm that is mighty to save, whom they owe their success, their preservation, their victory over their enemies." This is absolutely crucial. It is the historical covenantal element which roots and grounds an author whose circumstances are so difficult and so hard to process that he would be utterly shipwrecked of his own faith if he did not hold on to the sovereignty of God and his providential loving kindness, his chesed love, his steadfast care for his people through the eons, through the generations. How does he know these things to be certain and to be true? Well, God has also ordained a means by which to transfer the truths of prior generations to the heart of one who will need them as his very armor to stand in the day of adversity. And the primary means that is revealed of the covenantal elements of the history of God delivered to the heart and soul and confidence and well-being of his present generation that serves him is listed for us in verse 1. Again, O God, the psalmist cries, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. And I submit to you in that verse is a biblical philosophy for education. How do we know what God has done and how has this covenantal history been delivered to us? Well, it was taught to the psalmist by means of the fathers who had instructed, ones who had received from their fathers the testimony of God's faithfulness had been faithful to then declare it to their children. We see in the history of Israel that this was God's means all the way back, all the way back to the books of Deuteronomy, where Moses instructed the people that in spite of the fact that previous or succeeding generations would not be able to witness what the preceding generation had, the visible interruption by sign and miracle of their experience of with the fire by night and the cloud by day and the firestorm on Sinai, that there would be a sufficient means nevertheless to transfer to the next generation the kind of fear of the Lord That is prerequisite to their faithfulness to continue trusting in God who had graciously delivered His word to them. And that means was the diligent instruction of the parents to the children of the ways and means and faithfulness and providential covenant history of their God. They were to write these commandments and precepts and truths on the doorposts of their home. 
They were to be on their lips and they were to be didactically featured in the instruction of their children when their kids rose up, when they went by the way, when they laid down, when they went out, and when they came in. This is education. Education in a biblical sense. It's a vision for generational instruction. And it's introduced in the very beginning of this didactic hymn as the means whereby the psalmist has a grounding in spite of the situation he finds himself in. Spurgeon records this gem of a quote. I encourage you to read Spurgeon as much as you possibly can. I read him and his Treasury of David alongside my psalm series. I try to commit to read in total what he's written on the psalms each month. And it's also included with other Puritan authors in the Sometimes in the nooks and crannies of that great tome, you'll find quotes like this. This is Spurgeon. He says, When fathers are tongue-tied religiously with their offspring, need they wonder if their children's heart remains sin-tied? When fathers are tongue-tied religiously with their offspring, need they wonder if their children's heart remains sin-tied? Listen to that, young fathers. Listen to that, old fathers. Listen to that, grandfathers. When fathers' hearts are tongue-tied religiously with their children, need they wonder if their own children's hearts remain sin-tied? Think of our generation. Think of this culture. Think of the deplorable, precipitous, domino effect, landslide of absolute moral depravity that we're experiencing like a wave of destruction across the relational landscape of our own society. What could be the cause? Well, should it be any surprise to us that the hearts of the children remain sin-tied when the tongues of the fathers to instruct them religiously and to take on the duty, the primary role of educating them in the providential history of God, His ways and means has been absent from their upbringing? Indeed, the Scriptures give us the remedy for our condition even in our day today. Consider the situation that we no doubt can imagine at great length and degree as we read what is happening in the heart and soul of the author later. Verse 9 says, But you have rejected us and disgraced us. We have gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. And you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. So something has happened in the experience of this author to shake him existentially in his experience to the very core. He was told these things in the past, but now his experience is such that he has been separated from the convenient and the comfortable and the secure surroundings of a geographical location where he would be there with God's people fellowshipping together, perhaps in the exile or some similar situation. So he's been separated, presumably, or people have, in the nation from temple worship. He's been separated from the stories of old, the testimonies of God absolutely routing the enemies. And he has not seen that in his experience. Instead, he's seen enemies of God's people declare at least immediate victory for a time to rout them, to separate them, to send them away from their homeland. And so he has been denied the security of all of these helpful points of reference for hope and consolation. So what does he have? Well, I would submit to you in the context of this psalm, he's reduced to something in the soul. The only thing that our author has to hang on to in these circumstances 
is a testimony that was told to him when he was growing up in his household that is the lone source and point of reference and security for him now in this deplorable state of exile. It is the fact that God has intervened, that he has been faithful to his covenant, that he has long-term promises for him, and for the sake of his steadfast love, God will ultimately fulfill his promises. And so the author hangs on to, with substantively, that anchor for his soul. But it came through the education of his father, his father's father, his father's father's father, who had been faithful to tell him that Jesus Christ, ultimately, New Covenant Revelation, is Lord. In our own immediate situation here, in the families of Providence, We've experienced something of a relative baby boom, and it just brings a smile to my face every time I think about how many babies were born to this small congregation even in this last year. But we should take seriously all of those who have, can raise their hand and say we've had a child in the last few months or in the last few years. We should take very seriously the exhortation of this psalm. Consider, for instance... That there is a framework for education that tells us who is the student, who is the teacher, and what is the subject. And then let us implement this in our own homes again in verse 1. O oh God, we have heard with our ears. This present generation represented by the author has been a student. He has been a diligent and attentive pupil who has been raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And when he is old, those circumstances fail him. Ultimately, his faith will not. We also see that there is a teacher, a primary instructor, an influencer, a mentor, a disciple maker, one who has been there alongside. And that comes in the next phrase, our fathers have told us. We have the student, this present generation. We have the teachers, the fathers. And then we have the subject. What are they learning? What is the chief, what is some representative phrases to represent the chief worldview and the important things that have been transferred and communicated to this generation. We read this in the last phrase of verse 1. What deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. That is the deeds of our covenant-keeping God. The history of the covenant acts of God has been the curriculum in the homes and in the home of the author of this psalm. He goes on to say something that he learned growing up, verse 2, with you, you with your hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You, affli you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. Let me bring out one more contrast technologically, our day to the day this was written. Some people say, and rightly so, technologically speaking, that we live in an information-rich age. The proliferation of knowledge has reached an exponential peak that mankind has never known by degrees that we have today. You know, we can, we're just two clicks away on the internet from finding the answer to almost any question. We say Google this, we say Google that, as if the omniscience of everything we need to know is stored in some grand technological database for the immediate access of everybody's fingers. 
But with the proliferation of mere information, I ask you this question. Have we become more wise? Has this nation become more holy? Have we become more grounded and secure and fortified against the enemy of our soul and the debilitating circumstances of losing the foundation for the future? Absolutely not. It is not mere information and the assimilation of it that is the key to generational faithfulness and the kingdom's advancement. No, it is much more personally connected to the heart of the recipient than that. We must love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength. We must love the Word of God and meditate on its precepts and make it the chief feature of our affections when we have free time. We don't just trust that there's a database of quick answers stored somewhere that we can access when it's convenient. No, we set our minds upon the things that God has revealed so it doesn't stay on a useless shelf somewhere in a digital library or in a book in our home, but it's indeed written on the tables of our hearts. And this is the covenantal element and the implications of providential history that are so indispensable in the heat of the battle and in the depth of the trial. We must have written on our hearts the knowledge of the history of the covenantal acts of God and we must love them so much that we desire and obediently do share them with our children. It is almost, it's almost so natural we don't think about it that we talk about and share the things that we truly enjoy. How are you doing is met with a pretty good and then the small talk proceeds from there. And it's not too many sentences in casual conversation to where to, to we get to the point as human beings where we begin to share something that we find fun and interesting and has grabbed our attention and stirred our joy in recent days. Think about what those things are for you. Think about what they are. Because those are the things that you will either explicitly or inadvertently transfer to your children. Yes, open the Bible daily, fathers, with your family and read the scriptures. But don't just do it as an obligation and a duty, but truly love to do it and pray that the Lord would give you a passion for His truth. Such that the thing that you want to grasp and be the expert of more than anything else and to be able to master and to teach are the things of God, the history of His covenantal acts, the ways and means of salvation, the basics of biblical understanding, the ins and outs and beautiful intricacies of theology, because these are the things that will fortify our generation and the next to endure under the deepest of trials and afflictions. Secondly, under covenantal elements, I've talked about education, the covenantal element of education and its implications for our author. Secondly, consider the covenantal element of election. Contrast two types of people that we begin to see delineated in verses 2 and following. It says you, speaking of the Lord, with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. There are two types of people interacting on the stage of God's providential history. There are those who have received the blunt force of God's own hand driving them out. They're listed here as nations, peoples, later. 
And then there are those, it says, but them you planted. There are those who are driven away, but there are those who are nurtured, grounded, and secure, nourished and flourishing. Again, second phrase, verse 2, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. Again, two different scenarios. On the one hand, you have people groups who have received affliction or judgment, ostracization from the Lord. They have been set outside the favor of His presence and barred and fenced from communion with Him. But there are those who are in His good graces who have been set free. And we continue to read in verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right arm, hand, and your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So now three times we have the term them to refer to this privileged people, an elect within the subset, within greater humanity, that the author recognizes is in covenant relationship with the God of whom he makes his appeal, to whom he makes his appeal in this psalm. We get more specific, more specific identity in verse 4. You are my king, O God, he says, ordain salvation for Jacob. Now Jacob is a term used to identify this privileged few. Continues, through you we push down our foes, you, your name, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. And so now we see a personal pronoun attached to this idea of a favored few. The author has used them, he's used Jacob, he's used us to tell us, and he's also talked about and likely in reference to the prior mention of our fathers. He says again, verse 1, our fathers have told us thus and so, and then he says in verse 2, but them you planted. So he's likely incorporating all these terms to give us an idea of the context and the delineating identity of this people group that is in covenant with the Lord. It's a people group who has been generationally preserved, forefathers up to the present generation. It is those who have been the object of God's direct and divine intervention. They are the ones who God has planted in an unlikely place, so they are ill-equipped, not by the power of their sword, but by His sovereign hand. And it is also those who have been identified with this covenant term, Jacob. And that reminds us of the promise that God made, the covenant that He made to the lineage of Abraham. I have given you this promise. God had told Abraham that He would be a blessing to all nations. And so then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on would continue to live out and manifest this promise into the future. But those who now are identified with this group are the us, if you will, that the psalmist is writing about. He says, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. And there is kind of a timeless identity that gives him a sense of assurance here. Now we continue to read in his present circumstances it seems to contradict. He says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us. That's not quite the full reading. There was a time when God had pushed down the foes and tread, and tread down those who stood and rose up against us. In other words, there is an identity with the people of God that transcends the immediate experience of the author. He sees himself in a broader, sovereign context. God has chosen to set apart a people for himself. 
And ultimately, those purposes will be manifest in history. And those who identify themselves with any alternative social identity will ultimately be the enemies of God. Those who are the nations or the peoples that have an alternative social identity, who find their uh, self-purpose uh, and self-esteem and so on in anything less than the covenant identity and purpose that God alone brings through the gospel are the people that are ultimately at war with God. And so this covenantal element is helpful in our understanding of Psalm 44. He brings out the purposes of God to preserve against all odds for His glory a people, a small but thriving remnant. And even in those dark times of history where it seems like the enemy is about to utterly destroy and disperse those within this group, he knows, again, last verse, signal of hope comes again, he knows that there is redemption for the sake of the covenant-keeping God's steadfast love. Thirdly, under covenantal elements, there's a specification. There's a specificity, a, a really a particular way that the psalmist describes that those in Him, in Christ, ultimately will remain secure. Notice again in verse 3, these contrasts of means. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. Verses 6 through 8 continue with some of this compare and contrast. It says, For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. The psalmist sees a clear distinction between the carnal means of security and the spiritual assurance of God's promises. It is not bow. It is not sword. It is not their experience ultimately in their success and their plan making and their strategizing and their own uh, self-made pedigree that they will find hope. That is God's people in adversity. No, but instead they exclusively owe their deliverance and praise to the name of God. And they will boast continually and only in Him. They owe their allegiance and thanks to one force, one sovereign alone, and that is God, who is described as my King, O God, in verse 4. This is so important for us, as people are susceptible in any generation, to place their faith in carnal means and share some of the glory that God exclusively deserves with other ways and uh, circumstances in uh, people's scheming and so on. There's a particular source of confidence and success that the author exalts in this psalm, and he is not willing to ascribe glory to any substitute. So we ask ourselves today this question by way of application. Wherein does our hope lie? For our present plight and circumstances, if you feel the crushing weight of social degeneration in any sense similar to the author of this psalm, wherein does our hope lie? Well, today there's popular answers. There's uh, answers that earn people a lot of money 
you turn on your television set, there's any number of people, a countless numbers of talking heads who will give you their opinion on where that hope might lie. And sometimes I think it invariably rests underneath a heading or a summary of something like a progressive technical social state. Man sees things like I mentioned before, the proliferation of information, our great technological advances, the uh, warfare and industrial complex that is afforded to us in our great prosperous West as really key to hope for the future. Einstein had one insightful quote that I wrote down to share with you, and it seems as this quote uh, would, would seem to indicate anyway that he shared our author's skepticism in the unfettered human in unfettered human achievement. Einstein said, "All of our exalted technological progress." Civilization, for that matter, is comparable to an axe in the hand of a pathological criminal. All of our exalted technological progress, civilization, for that matter, is comparable to an axe in the hand of a pathological criminal. That is a very salient quote. Einstein lived in the age of a nuclear revolution where we were uncovering the secrets of the atom. And just taking a step back, generally, and let's say you're a fly on the wall of history and you didn't know anything about the interplay of nations and you just watched how we interacted in this last century with the super technology that our advancements and social evolution afforded us, what would you think? Well, you would see with the objectivity of an alien on the outside looking in, you would see landscapes strewn with the corpses and the collateral of brute power ungoverned by the morality of the Holy Scriptures and the transcendent truth of God. You would see axioms rising to the forefront of worldviews like Marx who said politics has nothing to do with morality, it is only expediency. And so he went on to systematically eliminate genocide, peoples by the millions who he saw as a threat to his progress and power, which he thought was for the ultimate good. We see this repeated over and over again. And what is the great error evident in our own ways today? And what might all of these have learned from Psalm 44? Simply this, that our hope is in the King of kings, the God of Jacob, and will not share His glory with our arm or a sword or a bow or the technological advances of any generation. It is He and He alone who saves us. It is His precepts and His word that will never return void. Uh, Nations rise and fall. And like I mentioned before, any other social identity is nothing more than a very creative way to commit collective suicide if it isn't based on the Scriptures. Because what will happen? Those nations will be driven out and those peoples will be afflicted. And no one's taller, as they say, than the last man standing. And we read the end of this book and know who that is. Jesus Christ, our conquering Lord and Savior, who who aligns himself with the purposes of Almighty God and all who are in him will one day conquer. And there will be a great day of reckoning and those who stand, stand in Christ and Christ alone. And they do not invest their security in anything less than His assurance of salvation. Recognizing that the hubris of technological man 
and the pride of this current generation will simply be a very sophisticated way to judge themselves, to bring judgment on themselves if they do not repent and put their hope in Almighty God. These are the lessons, the covenantal elements of the providential history that guided and governed our author and provided for him a foundation and a benchmark for hope. Finally, there is a foundation. There is a core, as I mentioned before, and I've alluded to it briefly, but we are assured of this in the context in the skeletal structure of Psalm 44 when you read the final verse of this psalm, this song of worship. It says, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So in spite of the anguish in between, this initial proclamation of God's sovereign providence, here we see a note of closure and hope as the psalmist reveals to us the anchor of his soul again. He says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And there again we have that Hebrew word. 250 sometimes, I'm told, it appears in the Old Testament scriptures. Chesed, steadfast love. It's a variation of that term that communicates so much when we see it in its covenantal and its contextual associations through Scripture. What is chesed, that steadfast love or loving kindness of the Almighty God? We've mentioned before, it bears repeating. It's God's loving kindness in condescending to the needs of His creatures in numerous ways, manifold ways. He condescends in redemption from enemies and troubles. He condescends in preservation of life, merciful atonement for sin, and in keeping covenant with His chosen people forever. This truth, the chesed love of God, the loving kindness of the ultimate covenant keeper, this truth provides the anchor for the author. It is the author's anchor in a sea of excuses for skepticism. There is a sea of excuses for skepticism, yet he remains tethered to this anchor. Again, I refer, to, I refer you to the center section of this psalm. And we see that left untethered, left without foundation and anchor, this psalm unfolds as a litany of excuse to leave the confidence of the care and of his faith and of the associations, the upbringing, and uh, whatever was the religious context of the author. But something kept him grounded. Something was an anchor, even when all seemed lost to his physical eyes. Something gave him grace to walk by faith and not by sight. And it is simply stated in that last phrase, steadfast love. So grab on to that, saint, so that today if we find ourselves, as we often do, in a sea, drowning, treading water in a sea of excuses for skepticism, is God really in control? What about these dark days? What about everything I thought to be true? It seems there's good reasons to doubt. I mean, look at my own life. Has my experience matched my expectations? We see those who have made shipwreck of their soul, charging headlong down the road of apostasy all around us. They need not do so if they have the anchor of their soul firmly fixed where the author of this psalm did. In the covenant-keeping, sovereign power, loving-kindness, steadfast love of the covenant-keeping God, whose said love is enough to keep us in Him even when all seems lost.
That's the main section that I wanted to deliver to you of the skeletal structure of Psalm 44. But let me just note a couple other things in passing. Note an element of surprise in this psalm, and then let's ask ourselves, is it a problem with the composition, or is it a problem with the ear? Is there a problem in the hearing, or is there, an a, prob- or is there a problem in what is delivered? First of all, let's consider this psalm and what might be missing to the modern ear. As we read these words, you have rejected us and disgraced us, have not gone out with our armies, in verse 9, and continuing in this litany of lament and despair, verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. As we hear these words, we think, hey, this is not really fodder for a great worship song, is it? We continue in verse 12. You have sold your people for trifles, for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors in derision and scorn of those around us. Why is this bound in the Psalter, the infallible Psalter in our scriptures as worthy worship to author to offer to the Lord? Is there a problem with the composition or is there a problem with our hearing? The derision and the scorn of those around us, you have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. And you see the anguish, you see the lament, and you hear overtures of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. And that book maybe many of us avoid lamentations, because that doesn't quite give you the same pick-me-up in the morning as some of your own favorite texts might when we start a day. But there is no problem, I submit to you, in the composition of this psalm. Never let it be said. Yell heretic at me from your seat if I were ever to indicate that to be true. This is perfect, infallible, inscripturated revelation from the sovereign God. It is, I submit to you, our humanistic Here's a big word, anthropocentric bias that corrupts our hearing. Anthropocentric means man-centered. We want things that are centered on our experience and only make us feel better and give us the boost like some sort of energy drink and a short-term fix for our own state of the soul. And in our modern times, given this kind of mindset that is culturally prevalent today, I submit to you that there are very few who would suffer this kind of circumstantial uncertainty and keep their affiliation with Christ. But in this psalm, because of the candor with which it is delivered, it is clearly evident that there is an amazing, a staggering level of faith That is demonstrated here, and it is of a unique quality. And it is demonstrated in this frank petition. As the author seems to be facing every existential reason imaginable to doubt the veracity of his own faith, he does not, he is not shaken, and he does not abandon his resolve ultimately in the word of God. And the Holy Spirit knew that we would need a testimony of one who had been pushed in his circumstances to the brink of despair 
and God still sovereignly clung to him, lest he fall into that pit and never return and just be lost to the apostasy, rebellion, agnosticism, atheism, paganism, or whatever the brand of rebellion in his day. He was not lost. He was found. And even though his heart hadn't, or even though he didn't understand his situation, and he said descriptively in verse 19, things like this, yet you have broken us down in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death, he still clung to the name of his God. He says, if we had forgotten the name of our God, or had spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He's indicating that there is in his judgment some, yes, level of unfairness in his short-sighted assessment of the situation. Yet he has also indicated that he is clinging to his God yet in these circumstances. It says, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are guarded as sheep for the slaughter. In our modern ears, this candid song of discontinuity between our experience and the ideal, if we were just to take it at face value with the modern mind, it could only be considered, it seems to me, two ways. First, this would be something like a shameful page on a diary, kind of dark period of the soul. When you came around to your senses, you would crumple up and throw in the trash can of denial. Or secondly, this uh, candor with which this psalmist describes his state of soul and circumstance would be taken by the modern mind as a compelling reason to leave your Christianity behind and rush headlong down the road of apostasy. And so we see both of these are the default reaction many times in the experience of maybe ourselves at, at times, God forbid. Uh, hopefully he has rescued us from that impulse or certainly others that we meet. Yes, yet this fact remains the fact remains that this, these words we've just been reading are intended as a worship song for the people of God for all time. We need to pray to have ears to hear the word of God and to hear what is truly richly here recorded rather than steer away from these more deep and challenging sections of scripture and miss the great treasures there are contained. So I tell you, I've uh, communicated to you that in this composition versus ear problem, there are probably great deficits in most modern ears as they hear these words that prevent us from realizing the significance of this beautiful body of worship. But secondly, along the same lines, let me submit to you that there was something yet missing in the contemporaneous ear. In other words, there was something missing indeed in the ear of the psalmist, if it could be said, not in the ear of the Holy Spirit inspiring the words, but the psalmist seems to demonstrate a kind of questioning that the new covenant has answers for. There's questions that are left hanging in the air. Why, Lord, have you allowed these circumstances with your people when we have bound ourselves to covenant and have trusted solely in you? Why are our enemies overrunning us right now? Well, the New Covenant punctuation does a great job, especially in Romans 8, where the, this very psalm is cited, verses 31 through 38. It's a great job in erasing some of these question marks that are lingering in the air with the notion, perhaps, of temporal emphasis on covenantal promise. In other words, if you were writing about the covenants of God and had it in your mind that the promises of God had their greatest emphasis in the temporary 
and not in the eternal. It would be easier to be disillusioned. But as the word of God begins to graciously unveil more and more of his truth, we find those that suffer later of his chosen saying things like this. And this is his suffering servant, Paul, verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I invite you to note the contrast and tenor between these two works. They're both poetic. They're both beautiful. They both are candid about the state of the soul. But notice what the revelation of Christ has imbued the apostle with as he writes in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if all these covenant realities are assured, what do we have to fear is the context here, the idea communicated. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I submit to you that list Certainly, Paul would have in mind the circumstances that are embedded in Psalm 44. He's asking the question, who shall separate us? Any of these dark and deplorable circumstances that the author of Psalm 44 was intimately acquainted with, such as tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And the answer is no. Rhetorically, it's clear, especially in light of Christ. Notice 36, he cites the psalm directly. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is Psalm 44, 22. And then it's, it's framed with these continued promises, verses 37 through 38. Know in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This new covenant punctuation adds an emphasis and a confidence and a security in Christ that in some way, though there in shadowy form, was a great benefit was a, is a great benefit to his people and leads us from the confession of despair to the proclamation of victory it leads us from the camp of woe is me and i am undone and i'm not sure if i can live another day with joy am i cons- confined consigned to depression for all my days because of the weight of the darkness on every hand. And just like we see a brief allusion in Psalm 44, 26 of God's steadfast love, we see it unfolding and that promise unfolding in all its pristine beauty in the New Testament. And when Romans 8 is given to us with the assurance and promises of Christ, we now see that our ears can be tuned to hear the salvation and assurance of Jesus Christ giving us grace to endure similar circumstances as those who have loved and been bound to Christ in covenant all through the ages have had to endure. In closing this morning, let us consider a first-person application. 
what ought we to do and consider and how ought we to act in light of what we have been studying, setting our mind upon in these words in Psalm 44. Ask yourself a question I would really strongly urge. Consider this. Are we standing with Christ such that reproach of us is tantamount to blasphemy of Him? Are we standing so close to Christ that for the world to reproach us is tantamount to blaspheming the Lord? I find this truth to be evident in Psalm 44. He says with a certain confidence that I'm not sure I can share. And I'm praying that this church, Providence, would be able to share. He says with a certain confidence that this affliction that is visited upon him is not because he has not faithfully bound himself to the Lord. He says, our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us down in the place of jackals. He says, verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out your hands, our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He's saying, Lord, search me and know me. You know my heart. The affliction that I'm enduring right now is not because I have been unfaithful to you. So therefore, this affliction fell into the category, indeed, of persecution. And we'll, discuss, we'll um, cover this more at length next week, but this psalm has been called a martyr's complaint. In other words, this is the sort of adversity that comes upon people not in the sense of well-deserving judgment, but in the sense of adversity for another purpose, God glorifying Himself by allowing His people to show strength and confidence in their faith under the most crushing, suffering circumstances. I ask you this question. If calamity began to rain down on the confessing church of America today, would we be able to say with good conscience that it is not because we deserved it? Could we in good conscience position ourselves in prayer alongside the writer of Psalm 44? Or would, it more, or would it be more in keeping with wisdom to consider the Lord bringing affliction upon us well-deserved because of our disobedience and because of our covenant unfaithfulness? Does our obedience and does our relationship with the Lord provide any ground to consider affliction of this sort anything other than deserving judgment? Remember, Revelation 2, verses 4 through 7, 16 through 17, 3, 3 through 6, chapter 3, 11 through 13. Jesus is writing through John to the churches and he says, I am coming. He says, I am coming to the churches. But he says, because of their apostasy and these references, often he is coming to remove their lampstand. He is coming in judgment. What is the relationship that ought to be the case between the reproach of the people of God and blasphemy. Well, it is this. We ought to be so tightly bound to Christ, so committed to following Him, that when people oppose us, they oppose us because we stand with Christ. Thus, the reproach of His people is a blasphemy of His own name. Matthew Henry writes of Psalm 44 that this is a psalm circulated for a day of fasting and humiliation upon occasion of some public calamity either pressing or threatening. 
And in my judgment, as I consider those questions I just offered to you, I think there is great room for repentance. I can search my own, own soul and say that personally, individually. But I think it's, even, it's a certainly easy for us, in some cases easier because of pride, to survey the landscape of the church of America today, our modern, in a relatively easy context outside of real intense physical persecution and see the same type of thing all over the place. If God brought real affliction and circumstances of hardship on the church in modern times here in our nation, our privileged nation who has just wasted and squandered the social capital of prior generations, who has not taught our children in the ways of God and His covenantal faithfulness of the past, but has turned over the instruction to the prevailing zeitgeist and worldview that hates God today. Any number of measures, you can look at our society today and see that things are falling apart at the seams. And thus, in this psalm, we have before us a call indeed to fasting and humiliation, if such is, is the case, because public calamity may not be pressing to our knowledge, but it may be, but it certainly is threatening for what we deserve, I think, as we look at the landscape of our world today. So we ought to humble ourselves before the Lord. We see in the Scriptures that there were times when God called His people to suffer affliction even when they were standing consistent and faithful in His Word. And we also see because they stood consistent and faithful to Him, that was the only reason they continued to stand. Trials are promised. They are part of the Christian experience. But there is no other place to stand assured than on Christ and Christ alone. So let us stand there. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that it is with a sobriety of heart and an openness of mind that we take in the instruction of your Scripture today. I pray that we would, by the light of the Holy Spirit, be able to search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way to confess a sin to reject today and to pick up a little more of the cross that you've given us to bear to follow you, God, and you alone. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, through the sharp and effective tool of your unsheathed sword of your word, do a mighty work in this great land in our own hearts, in our families, and beyond to our communities in this nation and world, Lord, to testify to the truth and glory of your unadulterated word. But Father, if we find ourselves divorced from the true means and ground of our salvation and security in Christ, I pray, Lord, that it would be reclaimed among your church. And may we lead the way in doing that by repenting of our own sin and returning, Lord, to the joy, the hope, and the ground of our salvation, our first love, Jesus Christ alone. We thank you, Lord, for the gracious, loving kindness, your chesed love, your steadfastness, and grace toward us, Lord, that knows no ends. And we thank you for the promises of new covenant glory that not even death or hell can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us take all these admonitions to heart so that when you return, Lord, either in judgment or at the end of days, you would find us, your faithful servants, doing the Father's work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.